0: Due to the graphic nature of the topics covered, this programme is not suitable for children or people who are easily offended or of a fragile disposition. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Still at Large Unsolved British Murders Hello, and welcome to this podcast series looking at unsolved British murders. Each episode will take a look at an individual murder or a series of killings that have, despite the best efforts of the various constabularies involved, and for whatever reason, never been solved. In most cases, the perpetrator is probably still at large. Series 2, episode 11, The Lancashire Ripper, part 3. Following the murders of Linda Donaldson and Maria Requina in 1988 and 1991 respectively, Greater Manchester Police uncovered the signs of as many as 21 potential serial killers who were collectively responsible for more than 100 murders and for a while, they considered that there may have been a link between the two women's deaths. Their most promising suspects all drew blanks and detectives were left with a series of killings as more women from the cities of Liverpool and Manchester were left in the countryside between them. Most of the women murdered were working as prostitutes and their murders were yet more vulnerable women killed by predatory men. there was some speculation that the women might have been killed by the various gangs that operate in those two cities. Criminal gangs have always popped up whenever there is an urban population for them to make their living from and they've always come in a variety of styles. Liverpool's historic gangs have been given a gloss of almost respectability due to the popular TV series Peaky Blinders, starring Killian Murphy. The series is a fictionalised account of the gang and, as is only to be expected, it is washed deeply in the waters of dramatic license. The reality of the gangs is a long way from the chocolate box version. Liverpool has also played host to a number of gangs who have used sectarianism as their key defining characteristic with strong links to the Irish Republican Army and various loyalist and unionist paramilitary organisations and other splinter groups. But since the late 1970s and into the early 80s, the gangs became far more organised and far, far more violent. Manchester and Liverpool were ready gun markets for importers of illegal weaponry. A favoured route was through the busy ports of Dublin and Dunleer, due to their proximity and historic ties. A central financial stream for gangs is drugs. The most socially deprived areas of Liverpool were the primary marketplace for heroin which increased dramatically in the 80s. And with heroin came other problems. Prostitution, burglary and muggings. These all came from the users who needed to keep soliciting, stealing and mugging to keep themselves in drugs but the really big problem came from the various gangs who controlled the supply. The situation grew to be so bad that the press began using nicknames like Smack City and Skag City in reference to the level of heroin use. Rich, powerful gangs with international reach and a small army's worth of munitions began to run areas of the city. The press dubbed the city Gunchester in reference to the almost daily shootings in the city. Of course it wasn't just heroin that the gangs were pushing, it was whatever they could push. Large international networks of drug trafficking developed with gangs becoming incredibly rich. With the riches came bloodshed on an unprecedented scale. Interterritorial wars between the gangs saw the deaths of many gang members and innocent people being caught in the crossfire. Protection rackets have always been a part of the makeup of gang controlled areas, as well as prostitution. My understanding of the matter is that there are some women who are working independently, but many are controlled by pimps, most of whom have a connection to the gangs in one way or another. It is through the linked prostitution that the role of gangs comes into our story. There are several theories about the reason. There are several theories about why the deaths of Maria and Linda could be gang-related, so I'll have a brief look at them and then explain my thoughts on the plausibility of them. Scenario one. The women were killed by their own pimps for some undisclosed transgression, and their bodies left as a warning to other women who dared dissent. Scenario two. The women were killed by a gang that wanted to move into the territory where the girls work, and to achieve this, they deliberately murder and mutilate a prostitute from that area to place a massive police presence in the area for a prolonged period of time, thereby undermining the stability of the gang and making it ripe for a turf war. Scenario 3 The savagery they were subjected to was a special request from a sadist with a big wallet. Scenario four. Wrong place, wrong time, wrong punter. Scenario one is quite plausible. Pimps murdering the women they control is as old as the business of prostitution itself, so there's an air of credibility about it. But I can't get over the fact that it would bring a lot of police attention to the area where the poor woman was last seen, which has generally been red light zones controlled by various gangs. It would create a lot of problems to the continuation of their trade. Had they been, and I use this word cautiously, simply strangling, bludgeoning or stabbing with theft of property and money murders, then I would definitely consider it a plausible theory but the mutilation is a step that is beyond what a pimp would need to do. Mostly they dispense physical violence, being careful not to mark the goods, with that abject pejorative phrase to diminish the worth of these people to no more than stock and livestock at that. It has been known for pimps and gangs to disfigure women who go against them to prevent them from being able to continue in the trade, which is horrific, but again, I can't get past those mutilations. It doesn't fit, but isn't entirely out of the question either. Scenario two is the least likely of them all, I think. The notion that a gang would be prepared to wait to take over a red light zone is quite, quite absurd. These gangs are run by individuals who think they are hard men, with hard men in the leadership, and hard men and be hard men as their foot soldiers. If they want an area, they'll kill for it for sure, but they'll kill the other gang members to eradicate the enemy. In many ways, these drug gangs are the purest form of capitalism and business. The organisational skills required to run a gang that makes hundreds of millions of pounds a year is quite phenomenal. In a utopian world, our legislation would be treating drug addiction as a public health concern and these criminals would be leading businessmen winning accolades for the development of international trade and commerce. They are, however, made rich and powerful by the current criminal legislation that keeps their revenue streams illegal and all of the money they make out of the public purse. With the current political will being so low towards the legislation of even medical marijuana, even with the granting of Billy Coldwell's prescription, it's hard to see that situation changing any time soon. As I write this, it's been announced by current Home Secretary Savid Javid that there will be a review of the supply of medical cannabis. It's a step in the right direction, but I won't hold my breath. Home secretaries tend not to last that long, and there'll be another cause, and most likely, as happened before, the academic reports from scientists and healthcare experts could well be dismissed as they don't fit with the planned outcome. If it happens, it could be a big step for a lot of people to manage their pain and medical conditions. The nature of this scenario is such that it would only work in a TV drama, such as Vera, or a film by Guy Ritchie. It's too elaborate, too fanciful. So, Scenario 2, for me, at least, is destined for the bin. Scenario 3 is worth considering, however. Whilst this is still quite an outlandish suggestion and doesn't really fit with the known injuries that Maria suffered, the police described Linda as having been held in a well-lit, spacious environment during the mutilation. It's known that there are people who will pay to watch people being tortured, raped and murdered. And it's known that the sums they pay are huge. The eventual arrest of Peter Gerard Scully proved the rumours of Red Rooms and pay to view murder to be horrifically true. Scully is one of history's most depraved individuals. If you're a follower of true crime stories, the only name you need to know is Daisy's Destruction. I haven't seen it and I have no desire to see it but the film is essentially the torture, rape and slow murder of a little girl. Those eight words do not do justice to the depravity this breathing effluent orchestrated, directed, videoed, streamed and accepted payment for. The reality of there being one film showing this is difficult enough to comprehend, but Scully made a series of these films. His depravity is unbounded, and whilst it is welcomed that he and his travesty of a partner, Carme Ann Alvarez, are locked away in a prison in the Philippines, their removal from the production of the worst imaginable material leaves a vacuum that some other depraved individual will occupy to keep the very wealthy purchasers entertained. Although I said that Scenario 3 is plausible, that Linda was killed to satisfy the need of a psychopath who wanted to torture, murder and mutilate a woman, it suffers several fatal flaws as a theory of the crime. Had there been a specific request for a woman to destroy, would this high-rolling murderer really have gone to the trouble of randomly picking a street girl at the end of the evening? it seems really hit and miss to me. If, and it's an enormous if, I were rich enough to afford to buy people for killing, I certainly wouldn't choose a streetwalker. With the final of the rather elaborate scenarios examined, and many of the gangsters and their associates currently behind bars, and therefore their DNA on the national database, it seems unlikely that the murders were gang related, or if they were, the offenders haven't yet been caught. That brings us back to the final and most logical conclusion that it was wrong place, wrong time, wrong punter. The differences in the mutilations between the two are quite distinct too. Linda was stabbed in the back twice and that ended her life. She was then mutilated over a period of hours there was considerable effort made to conceal the identity of the perpetrator. Linda had been carefully and thoroughly washed before being transported to Winnick Lane. Her death was a clear and deliberate act of mutilation, with the possibility of necrophilic features. It could have been a gangland enforcer having some recreational time, but it's much more likely that one of the 21 possible serial killers Operation Enigma identified is responsible. Linda's carefully washed and mutilated corpse is very different from that of Maria's. Maria's mutilation, if you recall, was that her body had been dismembered with what the police labelled as power tools before being stuffed in black plastic bin bags and dumped in a lake. It seems like the hasty decisions of an accidental murderer who throttled, suffocated or otherwise accidentally killed Maria and in a fit of panic cut her up and disposed of her in a very shoddy way. No attempt was made to weigh the remains to sink them to the bottom of the lake. Whoever put them in the water had, it seems, confused or didn't understand that the weight of the limbs and constituent body parts doesn't equate to their natural buoyancy. Now, I said there that it seems like the hasty decisions of an accidental murderer. But realistically, the, oh no, I've accidentally killed someone, I'd better chop them up and hide the body parts in a panic, Your Honour, defence, is surely one of the least plausible of all possible defences. The act of dismembering someone is a lengthy and gruesome process. There's going to be a lot of forensic evidence everywhere. The late great Dr. Edmond Locard, French pioneering criminologist and forensic scientist, first identified that every physical interaction leaves a trace. This is known as Locard's exchange principle. The premise of the principle is, in his own words, although translated, quote, any action of an individual And obviously the violent action, constituting a crime, cannot occur without leaving a trace." There are other more purple explanations, such as the one by Paul L. Kirk used on Wikipedia. "...wherever he steps, whatever he touches, whatever he leaves, even unconsciously, will serve as a silent witness against him, not only his fingerprints or his footprints, but his hair, the fibres from his clothes, the glass he breaks, the tool marks he leaves, the paint he scratches, the blood or semen he deposits or collects. All of these and more bear mute witness against him. This is evidence that does not forget. It is not confused by the excitement of the moment. It is not absent because human witnesses are. It is factual evidence. Physical evidence cannot be wrong. It cannot perjure itself. It cannot be wholly absent. Only human failure to find it, study and understand it can diminish its value. End quote. Whoever killed these women would have been covered in trace evidence and they would have to be really quite adept at cleaning up unless they were loners or the property was never visited by anyone else. There's a surprisingly large amount of people like that sadly. As I've said before, Linda and Maria weren't the only victims to be left in the countryside. On the 6th of August, 1994, 23-year-old Julie Finlay was found stripped of her clothes and left in a carrot field near to the Wheatsheaf Hotel in Rainford, St Helens. She had died of manual strangulation Julie came from a stable and loving family, but at the age of 17 had fallen in with the wrong crowd, started taking drugs recreationally and then progressed on to heroin and crack cocaine. Julie collected a conviction for petty theft and at the time of her death was staying in Toxteth with her boyfriend Ng. Apologies for the pronunciation. As the investigation continued, Police found a witness who had seen a woman answering Julie's description, arguing with a man who appeared to be attempting to force her into a white transit van. The witness had seen this exchange at around 12.30am on August the 6th. Her body was found around 45 metres away from where this happened. The pathologist who examined Julie estimated that she died between 1am and 5am. In the weeks that followed, a woman calling herself Tina called the police inquiry line to report that Julie had said that she was due to meet a taxi driver that night. But Tina never made contact with the police again. Julie's murderer remains at large. Possibly. I say possibly because there is a person in prison who has a track record of exactly this kind of murder by strangulation. Alan Kite is the typical transient lorry driver who murders women working as prostitutes after having used their services. Kite was born in Shropshire in 1964. He was a short sickly child because of asthma but he was cherished by his mother and sister. By the time he had left school Kite was to adopt the habit of travelling all over the country finding cheap bed and breakfasts and hostels to stay at. When there he would tell the owners or anyone else who asked that he was in the area looking for work. By December 1997, he was still short, still asthmatic, but now he was a bolding loner who travelled extensively as a lorry driver and as a mechanic. He would take a and b or hostel, then travel further afield too it is now believed by police, hunt and kill prostitutes. In December 1997, he was arrested for the rape of a woman he had hired as an escort. She had managed to escape his clutches. She then went straight to the police and as Kite was leaving two hours later, they arrested him. He was sentenced to seven years at Bristol Crown Court. During his incarceration, his DNA was found to be a match to trace evidence left on the bodies of 20-year-old Samo Paul, who was left in a ditch by the roadside in Swinford, Leicestershire, and 32-year-old Tracy Turner, who had been strangled and left by a roadside at Bitterswell, Leicestershire, around six miles away. There were only a few weeks between the killings, but there were four years between the murders and his arrest for rape. Sammo and Tracy had died in the spring of 1993, and as Kite had continued to work and function in society, as much as any loner with a predilection for prostitutes can function in society, he demonstrated that killing was not a novel experience, nor one that ruffled his feathers. It is known that at times he would undertake maintenance on cars, often with them being returned late, sometimes by weeks, and without the work having been completed or sometimes even started, and many went back with hundreds of extra miles, sometimes as much as a thousand miles on the clock. Where he went with a ready supply of untraceable, changeable vehicles is a matter of ongoing investigation. Kite has claimed as many as 12 victims and is seeking to be called the West Midlands Ripper, as it would elevate his notoriety. It's a horrible thing that we've fallen into, labelling every multiple murderer or prostitutes a ripper, as it makes it an exclusive club for people to try and join by killing and killing again and again. Very few people call him that. Most just refer to him as a short balding asthmatic lorry driver is just a miserable excuse of a man who hurts women. Detective Superintendent Mick Creedon from Leicestershire Constabulary said in 2000 that his claims to 12 victims, quote, could be true, end quote, as there were several other victims who matched not only the methodology of killing itself, but that shared the signature behavior of Kite. Kite was a collector of memento, he took small items of clothing, jewellery and personal items. We all have little keepsakes, something to remind us of a special time that may well appear to be junk to others or have no value beyond their intrinsic meaning. But there are inconsistencies with Kite being responsible for Linda or Maria. Kite was, as far as we know, a strangler who dumped his victims with little or no effort to conceal them. But the significant difference is that Kite didn't feel the need to mutilate his victims, as far as we know. His crimes were so nondescript that several other victims were ascribed to him. They included Janine Downs, a 22-year-old from Wolverhampton who had been found strangled, beaten around the head, sexually assaulted before being poorly hidden in a small hedge alongside the A464 Schiffnall to Wolverhampton Road. Kite was eventually excluded from the suspect list, another as-yet unsolved murder in the Midlands. Another woman who was thought to have been a victim of Kite, for a while, was Céline Figard, a French student who was found in a lay-by by by the A449 in Worcestershire. She accepted a lift from a lorry driver at Cheveley service station on the M4 in Berkshire. Her family lived in a charming little town in the east of France, where the Seine meanders lazily to the south and is surrounded by farmland. Céline had become somewhat infatuated with Britain when visiting in 1990 and travelled here regularly. By 1995, Céline was working in the UK during the summer at a hotel in Fordingbridge in Hampshire. Her cousin was head waiter there and Céline used the summer jobs to further explore British society and improve her English. When the winter holidays from college began, Celine made plans to spend a fortnight in Hampshire with her cousin before Christmas. Her parents had arranged a lift from a family friend who drove for a local haulage company. The plan was to drive her across country to the coast. There, she crossed the channel the following day and landed in Ashford, Kent. From there, her plan was to take a train to Fordingbridge in Hampshire, a distance of around 140 something miles. The journey by train would have taken her via London and taken around four to five hours. Celine tried to call her cousin to ask to be collected, but it is reported that she misdialed and could not reach him. The driver who had stayed with Celine As she made the next stage of her travel plans, found another French driver, Roger Bouvier to take her to Cheveley services in Berkshire. After they arrived there, Céline was offered a lift by the driver of a white Mercedes lorry, to Salisbury in Wiltshire. In terms of hitching, that route is quite a convenient one to take, as Salisbury is on the way to the south coast and the towns and villages of the New Forest, including Fordingbridge. Monsieur Bouvier had misgivings about the driver, but let Céline travel with him anyway. Céline was last seen at around 4.30pm on the 19th of December as the lorry left the services. She failed to arrive and shortly afterwards she was reported missing. Police appealed for information about her whereabouts and issued a photo fit of the driver they wanted to speak to. The police were working, initially, with the theory that Celine had been abducted, but by the following day, police were working on the assumption that she had been murdered. Her disappearance was given widespread coverage in the media. Her father visited the UK to assist the detectives in the search for his daughter. Unfortunately, all of the appeals failed to produce any meaningful information at this point. A motorist on the A449 pulled into a lay by to change a windscreen wiper and found her naked corpse. The fate of Celine was now known, and as the forensic examination unfolded, it was found that Celine had been left in the lay by for around 24 hours before discovery, but that she had been dead for around four to five days before being left there. What had happened to Celine became the focus of a massive police hunt involving more than 100 officers from three police forces. Although the police did not release a specific time of death, it is assumed that the driver had kept Celine alive for four or five days, so Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, before killing her, then keeping her body for another four or five days prior to deposition her post-mortem revealed that she had been raped and had been strangled. Her killer had used his feet on her face, kicking and stamping on it. But forensic scientists could not conclusively prove which had been the absolute cause of her death. It's also interesting to note that there are reports saying that she had had sexual contact prior to death, quote, possibly against her will, end quote, and at the same time, They also state there was no sign of sexual assault. As infuriating as it is vague, it is precisely the right tone for a scientific examination. It is the job of the pathologist to state the facts as discovered on the body without attempting to form a theory of the crime. That's the job of the senior investigating officer and his colleagues. The senior investigating officer, or SIO, was detective chief superintendent, John McCammont of the West Mercia police as part of the investigation they looked at other similar unsolved murders including those of Paul Samo and Tracy Turner but a link was ruled out when the SIO gave a press conference on January the 4th they were pursuing many avenues and in particular they wanted any information about a bottle of champagne that Celine had been carrying Pascal Charatien Champagne is a small label that produces modest but exclusive vintages. DCS Macamont said, quote, This particular type of champagne is not exported to anywhere in the world outside of France and is not sold in this country. It is a 1993 vintage and only 60,000 bottles have been produced, End quote. On the 12th of January, police announced that they would carry out a national DNA screening of all lorry drivers. In total more than 5,000 drivers and 1,000 vehicles were screened. On the 19th of January West Mercia Police announced that an arrest had been made, that the man in question was English and the following day it was announced that the man was from Poole in Dorset. A joint operation by West Mercia Police and Dorset Police had arrested Stuart William Morgan, a 36-year-old self-employed lorry driver. The mass DNA screening was not part of the arrest. A good old-fashioned photo fit and a colleague who recognised him called in and gave police the information that they needed. Morgan was a womanising transient worker who had moved around the south of England including stays in Tunbridge Wells, where he first grew up, then Croydon for college at the Polytechnic there, before moving to Bournemouth and then to Poole. He was sent to Borstal in 1974 for burglary. At college, he studied heating and plumbing. After college, he started a plumbing business in Tunbridge Wells. But when that business failed, he obtained employment in Bournemouth with the council as a heating engineer. It is reported that his colleagues at the council were aware that he had the habit – predilection might be a better word – for seducing women he encountered professionally, and it seems that his womanising was a big part of this odious specimen's life. His first wife, in Kent, was abandoned when she fell pregnant with twins. His second wife, from Dorset, gave birth to a son, and the couple married in 1994. Morgan had abducted a young woman, imprisoned her in the bunk in the back of his cab, raped her, strangled her, kicked her around the head and face and then kept her body under the bunk in his truck over Christmas and had killed her either on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, then spent the holiday with his wife and child. He had also been to work during this period and on at least one occasion had slept above her corpse before disposing of her in such a callous way. The champagne police were hoping to trace had been given by Morgan as a present to two petrol station employees opposite his house. Throughout his home, police found items belonging to Celine. They also discovered a bloody mattress in his garage, all of which Morgan claimed to have legitimate reasons for possessing. She left the items in his cab. The blood was from a different person who had cut his leg. None of which the jury believed and after three and a half hours they returned a guilty verdict. Morgan was sentenced to a minimum term of 20 years. His subsequent appeals against the conviction that the press coverage had made a fair trial impossible were dismissed. He is currently still in prison, still maintaining his innocence and still failing parole hearings because of his refusal to accept responsibility for his crimes. I mention this because although it seems unrelated as these two murderers are imprisoned, but both of them have been suspected as being multiple murderers and have attracted the speculation about their involvement in other cases that are similar to Linda and Maria's. Whilst Kite may well be responsible for further crimes, it seems, by the evidence at least, that Morgan is a disorganised opportunistic killer. He had purchased a shovel, axe and hacksaw to dismember her, but he had decided against it. It also introduces a note of caution about trying to fit a suspect to a crime, rather than let the neutral evidence lead investigators to a suspect. In 2011, a new suspect appeared on the radar of police forces all over the country. Christopher John Halliwell. Next time on Still At Large. If you have any information about these crimes, please call 101 and ask to be put through to the cold case unit at Greater Manchester Police. You can also leave information anonymously by calling Crimestoppers on 0800 555 111. That's That's 0800 555 111. Still at Large is an independent true crime podcast. It is written, presented and edited by me, Desmond J. Brambley. If you would like to help support the show, please visit our Patreon page by visiting patreon.com slash stillatlargepodcast. You can join in with the conversations about the show, or quite a lot else, on our Facebook discussion group, by visiting Facebook slash Still At Large Podcast. The theme tune is by Duke Deck, an online music AI at dukedeck.com. The incidental music was written and performed by Russell J. White. Links to his catalogue are in the show notes, and some was created by me. Still At Large is a Tiny Yellow Dinosaur Media production.